Welcome to the Adelaide Living Podcast, where we share the stories of the city. Adelaide is a city shaped by stories. Those of the traditional owners of the land and of our increasingly diverse community. Each story is unique, but what links them is the place of Adelaide, a city designed for life. So join us as we uncover inspiring stories of the people of Adelaide. Mike Turter, AO, has totally transformed the summer heartbeat of our city. The Santos Tour Down Under launches the international pro cycling calendar in the heat of Australia's summer. It is a massive international event, one that totally transforms Adelaide into an electric city every January. How did he bring that about? How did he and his team generate such a remarkable groundswell from a baseline of almost zero? Let's hear the story from Mike. There's a, a bit of a story behind the facts that made the race happen. You know, we're talking back in the mid-90s. There was a proposal by a couple of entrepreneurs who uh, were pitching to government a race from Melbourne to Adelaide and a million dollars prize money, which is nice, but they had no knowledge about the sport of cycling, didn't, didn't know how it worked. That was their pitch, was just simply two lines. So I was asked to meet with these guys, which I did, I was asked of my opinion. I thought, well, you know, a million dollar prize money is nice, but it won't deliver what we want. And I don't don't understand why you would include Melbourne in a race if you're going to pr- try to promote South Australia. So at that point, I was asked to come up with a concept and an idea about a race in and around Adelaide, which I did, which turned out to be the tour. So that was about mid-90s. First race was staged in '99, so I think we got the the nod that it was going to be funded by the then Liberal government in about '97, late '97, '98. So about a year out to get it all organised. But it was a um, a great uh, vision of the Liberal government under Olsen, John Olsen at the time. When we lost the Grand Prix, it was doom and gloom everywhere. But they made a decision, and it's worked out to be the best decision ever is they couldn't replace the Grand Prix with one event because the Grand Prix was just so big. So what they did, they decided to try to replace the economic benefit by a number, a series of events, the tour, the horse trials, the arts, the 500, and it's worked out to be a tremendous winner because all of those events collectively return to the state more than any Grand Prix ever did for a, a fraction of the cost. So it was a great strategy and it worked brilliantly. Gave us an opportunity to stage the race. Great opportunity to stage the race, but you had to go, despite all your cycling experience, which we'll get to, you had zero infrastructure to pull together a race of that calibre and get people from the Northern Hemisphere to take it seriously. How did you do that? Was it all based on your reputation? Oh, no. I mean, my concepts, my ideas were put in place. The, the factors that made the race what it, what it is today is that rather than stage the race at the end of European season, I propose that the race be at the beginning of the season in January rather than October. Traditionally, all of the races that were staged in Australia that featured international riders was at the end of the European season. So the riders are tired and they're not really interested in racing. That was number one. Number two was the participation of professional teams, the same teams that would ride the big races like the Tour de France. That had never been done in Australia. So to get those teams to come here to compete as they would in any big race in Europe was another big factor. So 
those two things we uh, we knew I knew were going to be really important to make it happen and to be uh, any chance of a success. So we did a feasibility study with the big teams in Europe and asked them would they be interested in coming on the other side of the world at that time of year and, and we got a positive response, which was great. And from that we started to plan the race, how it would work, like going out each day from Adelaide but using Adelaide as the base, which has never been done by any race in the world before, using the same hotel where all the riders stay, all the riders eat together. That had never been done before. So the, the tour village had never been done before. So all these elements that make the race a great success that it is today were all unique to the race in those early years. Because, That's exciting. Yeah, it was, but it was a lot of pressure because you mentioned the fact that there was not a lot of knowledge about cycling. All the people that I was working with, SAPOL, all of the councils, all of the people in operations, um, everyone across the board had no experience or knowledge about the sport of cycling. So we had to educate people very quickly on a very steep learning curve to bring them up to speed to stage a race in 99 that was at the required level acceptable to professional teams. Because I knew if we didn't get it right in the first year... You only had one chance yeah, to get it did. right the first time. If we had a problem in the first year, we were going to have a major problem moving forward. But we were able to do it. So it was a terrific effort by a lot of people. You could promise the pro teams, what was it? They could come and they could guarantee, you could guarantee they'd ride every day. No snow, no rain, yes. no hail. Was that part of the deal to yeah, get them done? Yeah, it was, down? apart from the heat. Didn't mention too much about that. But they can ride every day. If it's hot, you go out earlier, get back early. But the Europeans, um, I know that we had some potential drama in the first year with Zabel, the big sprinter. We had a bit of a heat wave. It went three days, 40 degrees or whatever it was, and he wasn't too impressed. He wanted to go home. And I knew that if he went home and got out to the press that we were dead in the water because it would have ruined our whole concept of what we were trying to achieve. That you can ride every day. Yeah. How, so did, I, you, how did you negotiate I with him? I pleaded with him and said to, took him out to dinner, him and his uh, other two teammates, and we sat down and I said, you know, training in this, in this weather is great for your physiology. And it is. I mean, training in heat does benefit you more so than training in the cold. But I said, this will go away in a few days and, and the weather will be perfect. And thank God it did. And he stayed to his credit. He won uh, two stages. He went back to Europe, had a brilliant year and then came back the following year too. So it was um, a really important thing to make sure that he didn't leave because it would have been reported heavily that he left because it was too hot. It was too hot. So, of course, you've educated <clears throat> the people of Adelaide very much because we're now very cycle savvy, yes. but we were not. No. Well, back then, if you look at the early posters, a 99 poster, it says tour down under and then the underneath international cycle race because no one knew what the hell we were talking about. Just weeks prior to the first event, we had a, um, a survey done on awareness and it was under 5%, which was... How did you feel at I that I was time? worried then. And then um, the first stage was just here down the east end, out, outside the Stag Hotel there. That was stage one in those days, a circuit race on Tuesday evening at about 7.30 just before dark. So we were petrified, you know, we were hoping that 10,000 people would turn up and on that first night, 40,000. Yeah, it was, it just struck a nerve. It, we knew it, from that night that something had triggered the um, the imagination of the locals and interstate people, and it just never looked back since. 
And in 2008, it became the first event outside cycling's <coughs> traditional European yeah. home to join the prestigious UCI Pro Tour. Can you tell non-cyclists yeah. like me what that really means? It's a world series of cycling. It's like the highest level you can get your event rated in the world. You could have had that race anywhere in Australia. Yeah. You could have made your life a lot easier and spent a lot less time on planes if you had taken that race to, say, Sydney or Melbourne. Yeah. Why, why Adelaide? Well, I lived in Adelaide. I was born and bred here. This concept was pitched to government based on a tourism event to promote South Australia and Adelaide and the surrounds. So it, it made sense that the race had to be in South Australia. On that basis... I was more than keen to make it happen here, of course. Melbourne, Sydney, of course, are big cities and the travel would be easier with their frequency of flights and everything else. But logistically, Adelaide lends itself to cycling more than any other city in the world because it's 10 kilometres in the, in the open country, in the Adelaide Hills. And in Melbourne and Sydney, to start a race within the city limits the suburbs and try to manage the race to get to a safe road, you might talking 50 to 100 kilometres, it's just logistically a nightmare. So Adelaide logistically was the city to stage an event that we design being centralised in the in the middle of the city. Is it too long a bow to suggest that Colonel Light's plans of the city of Adelaide <laughs> yeah. really helped your race and your thinking? It might be, but um, as we know, Adelaide, the city is flat, which is beautiful for cycling, of course. But as I said, you know, I mean, it's only 5 or 10k, you're in the open hills the beautiful roads of the Adelaide Hills and the climbs and the vineyards and so on. So from a logistic point of view, we can start in Unley, Norwood, Glenelg. We can have short neutral zones where we're under red flag, where we can ride between 5 and 10 kilometres and then the race starts. That's ideal for that type of race. When you were talking about that you were petrified with only 5% recognition yeah, of the event. You'd actually made a professional commitment, career commitment yeah. to this, hadn't you? You had resigned from your position as... Right. Superdrome manager and yeah. promoter, yeah. For this event? For one-year deal. How'd you feel? Well, I mean, I knew how important it was. I mean, it was a lot of stress, I can tell you, those uh, first, especially the inaugural year, of course, but the lead-up time when the team started to arrive and, and in the first year we had some big riders here and big teams. We had Eric Zabel, the best sprinter in the world, the current world champion, Oscar Camerson from Switzerland was here, Laurent Jalabert who was a famous uh, French cyclist. So we had some big riders and some big teams here in the first year and, and that was added pressure to make sure that everything went correctly. But um, as I said we did a lot of work with uh, South Australian police and other agencies to make sure that everything was as best we could have it on the road for safety. And the first race from that first night here in uh, the East End just didn't stop day after day after day. It was just fantastic. So Day after day after day mm. and year after year after year. Yeah. And you keep it fresh every year. Try how, to, how, do yeah. you, how do you do that? Just try to mix up the... Um, the style of the race and the start and finish locations. There are locations that are, are favourites on the race that have been hugely popular. You know, tens of thousands of people gather in different parts of the state and you tend to go back to those successful locations, of course, because the number of people they attract. But also finding new climbs and sections of road we've not been on before is difficult after this will be the 21st to 22nd edition coming up. Within a um, two-hour radius of Adelaide, it makes it hard to find new roads, but we've been able to 
design the course each year with elements that are different from one year to the next, so it's been uh, you know, refreshing and interesting for the riders and spectators. I understand you're an expert on map reading because <laughs> of your investigations of all the different roads. Well, I've ridden them since I was 12 years old. That's the beauty about designing a race in and around Adelaide is because I've ridden every road the race goes on as a kid uh, in my early years. So I had a really solid knowledge of how difficult the climbs are and what road surfaces are like and, and how to do circuits and where circuits work and where they don't. So my knowledge from my own years riding the roads was really valuable to me. Because you started cycling, I think you saw your brother race when you were what, Chris, about my brother, 12 yeah. at Pennington Primary? Hanson, yeah, Hanson Reserve. Well, I was at, at Pennington Primary School, but Chris was in his first years at high school and met up with um, a family uh, by the name Zuka Brothers that were racing locally. And so they got friendly and they just told Chris, you know, we're we're cyclists and we race at Hansa Reserve. So he went there and watched them a few times and he got hooked. Got himself a bike at Osterstocks at Port Adelaide, an old bike shop. (laughs) Laugh about it now, but anyway, that was his first bike. We went as a family to watch Chris race one summer and I entered the gates of the old track at Hansa Reserve and I was just, my mind was just blown away. For whatever reason, it just captivated me. And I just didn't think of anything other than riding a bike from that day on. Did you actually ever imagine that you would make your entire career out of it? No, not for a second. Because at one point you were tossing up carpentry or cycling. Is that right? Well, to a degree, I was told by a foreman uh, when I finished my apprenticeship, son, you've got to make a choice. You're either going to be a carpenter or a bike rider. And I said, well, (laughs) it's no choice to me. I'll be a bike rider every day of the week. Not knowing in my wildest dreams that I would become, um, you know, gamefully employed in the sport for the next 30-odd years, so 40 years. Incredible. And also, when you were starting out, it was early days in cycling, certainly here in Oz, there was very little support for you. Oh, I mean, no, you, you had to yeah, yeah, like train everyone. yourself, yeah, yeah. fund yourself, yes. get yourself to Europe. Like yourself. most, yeah, like most Olympic sport, you know, people that are in my era, there was very limited support for training and travel and to try to compete at the high level. And Mike Noonan created the South Australian Sports Institute, which was a godsend for a lot of athletes because it gave support to sports that would normally not get anything and Mike Noonan and the work they did at Sassy's the Sports Institute were in the 80s a real help to a lot of athletes and can you remind me who was Mike Newman Mike Noonan was a famous football coach he coached North Adelaide Football Club he's a a famous player of his own right he played for Sturt and Nord but he coached North Adelaide to a couple of premierships and he was the director of the South Australian Sports Institute so he was a big mover and shaker in sport at that time uh, in Adelaide and he established the institute with uh, John Bannon, the then Premier, the Labor government's support. That's when things started to really work and help athletes in those minor sports that would never get any um, you know, financial support or anything like that. Financial support, which is, which is massive, yeah. but also... I think the sports science yes. filled the gap. You're on record as saying that we were knocking on the door, meaning you were so fit, yeah, your training so hard, but you needed the sports science to the fill the gap. Sports science was a key because Charlie Walsh, who came into full-time coaching, was a, he was ahead of his time. He, he understood what the requirements of um, preparation were to become a highly competitive cyclist internationally, and he also knew the benefit, the great benefit of sports science, which he utilised to the nth degree. 
we, we were tested regularly every six weeks. We knew um, exactly why we were doing a certain activity in training because Charlie, and it's very, I think it should be happening all the time, athletes need to know why they're doing a certain activity because it gets pretty tough. So if you understand the reason why you're doing it and the benefits from doing this work, then it's easier to actually commit to do the, the hard work. We knew exactly the reason why we were, we were killing ourselves out training because the benefits were going to come later, and they certainly did. Tell us about those races, including the one where you rode with a broken arm. A risk. I mean, I mean that was in Los Angeles when we won the gold medal. Um, How did you do that? Oh, we just had to. I crashed in um, Germany about two weeks before going to Los Angeles, it was, or maybe less than that, maybe 10 days or so. It was the final race in Germany that we had in Europe before we left to go to Los Angeles. It was the last preparation race, a circuit race in Cologne, 100-kilometre event. And we were just asked by Charlie just to uh, get the full distance in your legs and don't take any chances because this is the last race. We don't want any crashes and let's get the LA in one piece. Obviously... Um, that didn't go to plan because there was a pile up and I was involved in it and I went over the top of a group of riders, put my hand out to brace the fall and I broke the scaphoid bone in my wrist, which I knew immediately I was in trouble. So when we got to LA, it was x-rayed and they um, confirmed that it was broken. So I just had to um, grin and bear it, really. Because you were the lead rider. I was the starter, yeah. What does that entail? The starter of a team pursuit, the four-man event, is really critical to the whole setup because uh, it's firstly the most difficult position because you don't get any opportunity to settle. You're exposed from the word go, from the standing start. But your responsibility is to get the team up and going to a good pace, the right pace required for the for the opponent that you're racing. So you, you have to have a good judgment of speed. And I was, for whatever reason, I could judge speed pretty good. And if Charlie asked me to go a bit quicker, I could just lift it that little bit but not too much to blow the other riders off the wheel at the start. So it's a very responsible position on the race and it's mostly, I believe, it's the most difficult position to ride team pursuit. So, yeah, I was the starter. Was, there, was it, there some thinking that somebody else could do it? Well, that was mostly in my favour because out of the group, I was the only proven starter. There was other riders, maybe one or two, maybe, I think, maybe one of the push that could start, but they were a little bit inconsistent. So... My place was protected to a degree. I, I asked Charlie a couple of years ago whether they ever thought of leaving me out because of the issue, but they, he said never. It was never even a consideration, which I thought was pretty good. But it's hard to sort of explain the level of discomfort, but it's a bit like trying to ride with one arm, if you can imagine, because I couldn't pull too much with my left. I've got eventually had a pin put in there. But from the standing start, when you're using all of your strength to get away and you're pulling on the handlebars to try to get the momentum of your body moving forward with the mm. bike, you normally do it with two hands, two arms, and the upper body all being even. But I was compromised on the left, so I'm sort of trying to do it all on the right, which I was a bit out of whack. It was taxing. It was really giving me trouble. But anyway, we got through it all right. We had good a good team. And you won. We ended up <laughs> winning. <laughs> yeah, that was life-changing moment. Yeah, 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 you said your life changed oh, that day without a shadow of a doubt. Absolutely. Tell us. Uh, well, doors opened, phone was ringing, people knew who you were, what you did. It opened opportunities. It just allowed you to be a little bit more sort of active in the business world, trying to get things done. 
it really did change not only my life but all of our lives, absolutely. And then you came back because there was an offer, I think, when you came back that you could start at the Sports Institute, is that right? <laughs> Mike Noonan, he knew how keen I was to um, change jobs because... This was still with public Public, public building. buildings, I was a carpenter. I'd qualified, took me seven years to do a four-year apprenticeship because all the time I had off. But when I left school, all I wanted to do was be a carpenter. And when I became a carpenter, that was the last thing I wanted to do because I was heavily involved in cycling. Mm. So Noonan said to me that if you win a medal in uh, LA, I'll get you a job at the Institute because I could be transferred from one department to another. So, of course, the first phone call I made when I got back was to Mike Noonan. And to his word, he got me a job. <laughs> and then I became a full-time cycling coach at SASE when they started to get a bigger budget and then employ coaches on a full-time basis. So I did that for five years. So you would have been a lot in that position, sort of changing how cycling was happening in South Australia was, and Australia. Yeah, there's a change, of course. After LA, cycling was uh, admitted to the Australian Institute of Sport as an official uh, sports program within uh, that organisation which hadn't been before and that was a big moment because it allowed people like Charlie Walsh and others to be employed on a full-time basis and really put a lot of energy and more energy into the uh, task of preparing riders that had bigger budgets, better equipment so the athletes were well looked after after Los Angeles because before that it was always a big struggle. Also, I think you said that these days, uh, if you went in and bought a $1,200 bike, it would be better than the yeah. bike you had in Los Angeles. Yep, the bike that we rode in LA, the bike that I rode was pretty ordinary <laughs> by con comparisons today. I mean, there's no comparison. There's a number of factors. The tracks are a lot better. They're indoor board tracks, beautifully designed in our day. The Los Angeles track was outdoor concrete. It was bumpy, badly designed. It was terrible. The bikes and materials used are carbon fibre, so it's a fraction of the weight that we were using. The disc wheels are a big factor, skin suits, sports science. I mean, we rode skin suits, long-sleeved, no, short-sleeved, latex-covered skin suits in L.A., the worst possible garment you could have ridden in that heat to retain heat. We were thinking about aerodynamics. They were covered in latex and we were sweating like there was no tomorrow. But they, they were the worst garment we could have wrote. But we just didn't know to that degree how because important. Because sports science is yeah, developing yeah, in all of its yeah. facets. I mean, in Brisbane at the Commonwealth Games, two years prior, we had long sleeve ones up in Brisbane, which were even worse. So, you know, you live and learn, but... Every aspect of every bit of equipment that we used in LA has been superseded by 100 mile uh, in, in comparison to what they use these days. So obviously this innovation and creativity in sports science, this is continuing to develop here oh, in Adelaide. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the sports science element is still really important because they monitor the progress of the athletes when they're doing certain phases of training and when they're in um, phases that are targeting to improve blood lactate, um, anaerobic work and all the different aspects of uh, physiological training, they can monitor to, to the nth degree as to the benefit of what you're doing, whether it's delivering the benefits that you're after. Exposing athletes to blood lactate levels so that their body can learn to cope with the um, blood lactate levels to get rid of it out of the system to allow them to perform and go harder and faster is what it's all about. I mean, lactate is what stops you from 
continuing. You know? Now, your physiology apparently was spot on for cycling. You have to right? have it, yeah. I mean, we knew, Charlie knew, that VO2 max, which is a measurement of your body weight plus your oxygen consumption, there's a special formula that the uh, scientists can work out and they give you what they call a VO2 max number. If you score anything from 75 up, between 75 and 100, you're regarded as being, you know, at the required level with the motor required to cope with this sort of work. Our group in LA, the majority of the group were in the in the 80s, like the 80 to 85 range with VO2 max, which is a real solid base to suggest that the athlete has the engine to cope with the work and can perform at that level. It's what your mum and dad give you. It can be trained, but it can't be developed to a degree where you can get someone from a 60 to an 80. It's not possible. But if you have that from your genetics, then you've got a chance to make it. We've had a couple of golden ages of cycling here in Adelaide, haven't we? I mean, there was the age with you and then there was the age with O'Grady. Is that right? Yeah, I think from 84 through to present day, there's been a consistent performance level from a lot of athletes during the 80s, 90s and 2000s that have um, been really significant. I mean, Stuart O'Grady, Brett Aitken, um, Luke, Luke Roberts, they're all local riders that have won Olympic medals, uh, world championship and performed at a very high level. And all coming from Adelaide. Yeah. Yeah, Adelaide has never been huge in numbers, but we've all, always had a really good quality of um, riders, male and female, that have performed at the highest level. I don't know why, but it's just one of those things. You know, South Australia's really punched above its weight many, many times in cycling disciplines on road and track and other mountain bike and BMX for many, many years. It's having people like, in our time, Charlie Walsh changed the whole deal <laughs> because South Australia was considered to be you know, um, okay, but when it came to national championships, the, the big riders were coming from New South Wales and Victoria because of the population thing. But when Charlie came along, suddenly things started to change at the uh, national level and we started to win national championships. And it was because of the training we were doing. Then slowly but surely they all realised that you know these guys are doing something bigger and better than uh, what's been done previously and that's why they're performing and that's why we're getting beaten. So they tried to do catch-up after that. And they're still trying to do catch-up. To a degree, yeah. I just saw the stats for the 2019 tour mm. and I gather it generated a record 70.7 million mm, in economic benefit yeah. for the state and 837 full-time equivalent jobs. All this from, at one level, one, one race, one week of Yeah, races. because the beauty about tour racing, cycling, is uh, unlike sports that are held in stadiums or arenas where they're just in one place – the tour goes out to the Barossa, Fleurieu Peniche, Adelaide Hills, goes through 50-odd country towns during the course of the week of racing. It's free to the public. It's international. So all of your ethnic groups, the Italians, the Germans, the French, the Dutch, have all got representatives in the race. So they all come out. There's no age demographic. The little kids through to the grandparents enjoy it. So it has a lot of attributes that make it popular, and it's different. And it's exciting to see on the road with the entourage with the police and everything that's happening on the road. So the race has major benefits over a lot of other things that are contained within a stadium or a venue because it goes out on the road and shares the, um, the experience with a lot of people. 
you know, goes past where people work, where they live. It also helps get people fit. Yeah, I mean, there's been an increase in cycle activity, of course, um, through the tour, especially in the early years, it was just staggering. But yeah, gets people out and about. When you made the move to take up that initial just one year contract with the tour, was that the biggest career crossroads for you? In life, things happen and decisions are made that make a big impact on your life. And this was one of them from a business point of view for me. I was at the Superdrome and it was becoming difficult out there with uh, riders um, turning professional and we were losing them to the domestic uh, scene. So it, it was not becoming easy. And then the tour possibility came along and I just thought, you know, this was um, a great opportunity to do something different but stay stay within the sport of cycling. Road cycling, of course, is different to track. I've made two major um, career decisions in my life, actually three. From a cycling point of view... I had an opportunity to turn professional in 1983. Mm -hmm. It was after the Commonwealth Games, so between 82 and 84 LA Olympics. And I chose not to turn professional because at the 83 World Championships, we finished fourth in the team's pursuit. So I knew that we were close to an Olympic medal and to win an Olympic medal was a dream come true for me. So I thought I'll stay for another year for LA, try to get in the team, and then maybe we might have a chance at the medal. And then we won the gold medal. So that was a major decision not to turn professional in 83. Then another decision when I was coaching at SASE was to continue to coach or go into event management and promotion when the Adelaide Superdrome was built in 93. I looked at the possibilities. Charlie Walsh was the then head coach. So in 93, in my view, there was a minimum of a 10-year period where Charlie would remain head coach, so I would have to stay at state level for that period until I had an opportunity to become the national coach. So I wasn't prepared to do that, so I decided that I'm going to go down the path of a race organiser and manager, and that's what I did. So that was the second major decision that paid off for me, becoming a promoter and race organiser rather than continue to be a coach. And then the third major business decision was quitting the job at the Superdrome and taking a one-year deal to do the first tour. Yeah, that's a pretty scary so one. It, it was, it was, but here we are 23 years later and we're okay. Yeah, that's yeah. true. And you also, you could have been a great footballer, I gather. Well, uh, that's, <laughs> I must actually milked that a little bit, but, yeah, I was playing for um, my school and then uh, I played for Port Adelaide Districts. So my cousin played league football for Port Adelaide, Brian Holmes, uh, during the 60s when I, we lived at Alberton, just around the corner from the Oval at King Street, Alberton. So I was heavily into the interest of football, Port Adelaide Football Club. So my ambition was to play for the Magpies. And I um, played for my school, then I played Port Adelaide District football against uh, the Barossa and so on. And then um, I was getting personal tuition from Mark Kretschmar from Port Adelaide that was giving me handball and kicking tuition, you know, left and right and all this sort of stuff. And then Chris decided to go to Hanson Reserve one night and ride his bike. And that was it. I never okay. kicked a football again. You've been given the keys to the city of Adelaide. Yes. And I checked that out on the website. Mm. Not many people get it. No. How, did it, how does it feel to get the key yeah, was a, to your yeah. own city? It was a, a beautiful moment because uh, my family, all my friends were at the town hall and it was a, a terrific gathering um, of people that are close and dear to you. It was a great honour. Adelaide, 
I've always been a fierce defender of South Australia as an athlete and also as a race organiser. I mean, Adelaide and South Australia to me is where it's always happened and I would never think for a second to live anywhere else because I just like it here, I love it here. So to be awarded the keys of the city was a, a big honour for me. I did investigate it a little bit. I was told um, there was a, what are the benefits of the keys of the city about opening doors? It, <laughs> it doesn't open any doors, many doors, but it, it does give me the privilege of something that was proclaimed back in the 1800s that I have the right, if I choose, to herd my sheep and cattle down the main street of Adelaide as a holder of the key of the city. <laughs> this is your last year? Yes, it is. As yeah. director. What's, what's next for the race? What's next for cycling in South Australia? And what's next for Mike Turter? For the race, the few, I mean, I direct my last race in January, so this will be it in 2020. So I've completed 22 editions of the race. So that is beyond my wildest dreams. The, the decision to stop, I'm 62 in uh, July, so obviously at this time of life you've got to start making decisions as to uh, what the future may hold. Stopping and retiring from the race of something that's been in my mind for a number of years. So it's not something that's just happened in the last few months. I've been thinking about it and planning it for a while. So the transition from uh, from my directorship to a, a new person has been carefully planned and, and worked out and that will be implemented in the next period. So the future of the race, I think, is really solid and exciting because it's it, it, it continues on a good foundation. So we, we've created a really solid base for the race and over over the years that we've staged it since 99. So that's not in question. But I'm excited to see the new person, the new director come along and implement their ideas about the race, the new courses, the new climbs or whatever else they may think would benefit and be different for the race. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that because fresh eyes and ideas are really good for anything. So I look forward and I'm excited to see what developments happen on the race when I do leave. And there's no reason to suggest why the race won't go on for 100 years, you know, because there's races in Europe that do have a history of 100 years, many of them. What's the future for The future is bright. I mean, we had a problem with doping that was a serious issue in the 90s that was out of control. But cycling has, had been singled out and there was, a, there was a major problem in many sports. It was that just cycling was the only sport that was exposed uh, in the media to the degree that it was. That problem has been managed and it's a lot better. It will never go away, but it's a lot better than what it was because of the procedures, testing and monitoring and all that type of thing and yeah. education. So things have improved greatly since those years. So from that point of view, the sport is solid. It's still a sport for the people. And you can see that every time you, you turn on to see the Tour de France or the Tour here, the, the thousands of people that support it on the road. Because everyone's ridden a bike in their life and they know how difficult it is. You don't necessarily have to race to know that when you're out riding to school with a headwind and it's uphill, it's bloody hard. So people appreciate how difficult it is. That's something that nearly everybody has done, ridden a bike during some time of their life. So they've got a bit of a connection there. So the race moving forward... The, the sport with the uh, Australian Institute of Sport at the uh, Superdrome is a magnificent setup with high-level coaching and facilities there. And Matthew Glatzer and Stephanie Morton, who are both South Australian world champions, leaders in their field. The Olympics coming up in Tokyo. We have um, 
riders who train and live here that are going to be gold medal um, prospects in Tokyo. So we're continuing to be very, very impressive in that area. So all in all, I think it's extremely bright future for the sport. And it's a very exciting sport and a very dangerous sport, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, well, that's an element that attracts people too. The speed, the danger are elements that human beings enjoy to uh, watch. I mean, that's one of the aspects, you know, when they're coming off a climb in the in the tour here at the 100 kilometres an hour, coming off a corkscrew down Montague Road or Penny's Hill Road down south before they tackle Wollonga Hill, is a 100-kilometre descent on a bike. I mean, there's 130 of them all together, and then when they hit the climb Wollonga, then it's a, a survival of the best, you know. like It's just people love it. They see the suffering and the endeavour and the effort of the riders trying to make every post a winner up the climbs. It's just an, uh, an aspect of the race or, or cycling that's um, been a big attraction to the public for many years. I never, I never lose my respect for the riders because I know what they go through. I know the danger of the sport when you crash and come close to serious injury or sometimes worse. The chance they take and the, the requirement to hurt yourself on a bike, especially at the high level, is immense. There's only a handful that can get to that threshold and go above. So it's a big factor in the sport. Sports that require you to hurt yourself are a lot different to sports that are not oxygen-driven and requiring that massive effort. Rowing, cycling, swimming, athletics, running, these are sports that demand that you inflict physical pain on yourself to a, to a level that the normal person would, could never imagine. People often think because you're fit, it doesn't hurt. I can tell you. <laughs> you. You would know. Well, because people see athletes that are trained highly at a very high level on a bike or running or rowing, they don't lose their style. They still seem to be doing it within, but it's absolutely screaming inside. But what, what that fitness and training does for you is to allow you to go fast and for a long period, but it also allows you to recover quickly to do it again. It doesn't take away the pain. <laughs> Nothing can take away the pain. Final question. What's the future for you? For me, we've got a place on York Peninsula where I, I enjoy fishing and um, I just like getting away and being in the little country towns. So I want to explore York Peninsula, every aspect of it, during the next period. But also uh, Sandy and I want to continue. We do uh, the track down under, the advertiser track down under, an event out at the Superdrome. So it's getting back to my old roots, if you like, when I was a track promoter. I enjoy um, organising, especially with the quality of athletes that we have here at the AIS. So we do that in January each year before the Tour Den Under. So I want to try to develop that and maybe uh, make that bigger and better into the future and still keep a hand in regard to management and promotion of events on the, the track, like, like the old days. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Adelaide Living Podcast, which is brought to you by the City of Adelaide. Discover more stories about people, places and projects having a meaningful impact on our city by subscribing to this podcast or visiting the Adelaide Living website at living.cityofadelaide.com.au.